Very truly, I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by another way is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Raymond Brown spent 40 years of an adult lifetime studying the writings of the community that surrounded John, brother of James, one of the sons of Zebedee, one of the three who seemed to have been closest to Jesus, the three whom he took with him in some of the most private moments of his life, Peter, James, and John. Scholars believe, Dr. Raymond Brown believed, that those who surrounded John in the community he established after they fled Jerusalem, a generation later wrote what they had learned from him, that that community produced the fourth gospel, three of the epistles, and the revelation. In commenting on this passage, Dr. Raymond Brown from Yale Divinity School said, I am convinced that this author has in mind one passage from the Torah and one from the prophet Ezekiel as he wrote from within Babylon in that captivity in the 6th century before the Common Era. These are the readings. From the Torah, And the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain and see the land that I have given to the Israelites, and when you have seen it, you will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. And Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord appoint someone over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, so that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua and lay your head upon him. Ezekiel. Thus says Yahweh Elohim, Ah, you shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick. You have not bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed. You have not sought the lost. So they were scattered. There was no shepherd. As I live, says Yahweh Elohim, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will rescue them from all the places to which they have been scattered. I will feed them. I will feed them with good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. I will set up over them one shepherd, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, Yahweh, will be their Elohim." They shall know that I, Yahweh, their Elohim, am with them. You are my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, and I am your Elohim, says Yahweh Elohim. I think I've touched a sheep three or four times when we walk through the petting zoo with grandchildren at the Tulsa State Fair. Gail and I really like 
cheese made from sheep's milk when she makes wonderful Italian food. It's called Pecorino Romano. Other than that, I don't know much about sheep. I'm called a pastor, a shepherd, but I don't know much about sheep. So this week I decided to see what I could learn about sheep. And I found an article whose title immediately intrigued me, So You Think You Want to Raise Sheep. <laughs> and I started reading and found that this brilliant person had four points. He began by saying, sheep are a flocking animal. They are prey, P-R-E-Y, not predator. They are herbivores, not carnivores. So they find some strength in great numbers, some sense of being sheltered the bigger the number who are gathered. When I was in high school, one of my classmates' father decided to build a new feed mill. He wanted to be sure that he could get half the folks in Panola County to come that Saturday and watch him push the button, all these huge vats of oats and corn and molasses got all stirred up together and came out into sacks of horse and mule feed. So he called the Louisiana Hayride in Shreveport said, I need an entertainer, somebody who will sing on the front porch of my new feed mill, help me draw a crowd. Do you have any ideas? He said, well, we got one young guy. He was driving a truck out of Memphis, Tennessee. Crowds here seemed to like him. Mr. Neal said, what will that cost me? He said, $100. He said, I'll pay 100 And Elvis Presley came to Carthage. He came to Carthage, Texas, and he sang up and down the front porch of the feed mill that afternoon, got his $100 check, and left. But Monday morning, every kid in high school was looking for a pink shirt and black slacks. <laughs> Girls were wearing pink skirts, white bl black blouses. When I was a sophomore in college, John F. Kennedy was elected president and millions of American women wanted a hairdo like Jacqueline's. And then the Beatles came. Boys let their hair grow to look more like the Beatles. When I meet with our youth and question and answer, I often hear one of them accuse another one of having Bieber hair, as in Justin Bieber. When I was a boy and folks were coming home from World War II. I rarely saw a man with a tattoo. You could almost be sure they had been in the Navy, had a little too much to drink in some port city somewhere and let somebody tattoo them. I had a big, beautiful wedding here recently. Six beautiful young bridesmaids came down that aisle, took their places just to my right. They and the bride had decided on some beautiful low-cut gowns, and when the service was over and they're all going up that aisle, all six of them had tattoos shining on their shoulders. It's a different world, but they just keep on flocking. They just keep on flocking. And we need to hear this voice say, I want to be your shepherd. I want to be your shepherd. Number two, he said, sheep 
tend to be passive. Great numbers of them think silent majority. So they look for leaders. Sometimes they pick well, sometimes not so well. He said there is a documented case of an old ram who was leader of a large flock. He got spooked one afternoon and started running. He made a wrong turn. He went over a high cliff and 400 sheep went right behind him. Three years ago, Gail and I walked through the Brandenburg Gate at Berlin. My German professor in college, his wife, were both professors, University of Berlin, 1933. They were Jews. They were told after the election of Adolf Hitler, you will no longer be allowed to teach. They told me, one day you must go to Berlin. The German people are strong. They will reunite their city. You must walk through the Brandenburg Gate down the beautiful Unter den Linden, see all these magnificent trees, have a sausage, enjoy. We went in 1988. We couldn't get through the Brandenburg Gate. There was a huge wall dividing the city. There were German shepherd dogs and armed soldiers everywhere. It took us an hour and a half to get through Checkpoint Charlie at Potsdamer Platz. We were there three years ago. You can walk through the Brandenburg Gate. You can walk down Unter den Linden. And Potsdamer Platz has a Dunkin' Donut and a subway shop. I remember my professors, the doctors Strauss, saying that when Adolf Hitler was running for office, he could really make a speech. We were down, defeated. We'd had such harsh penalties imposed upon us at the end of World War I that our inflationary rate was unbelievable. One day a loaf of bread was a Deutsche Mark, and the next day it was two Deutsche Mark, and the next day it was four. And soon you needed a wheelbarrow full of Deutsche Marks to get a loaf of bread. And the intelligentsia at that university said, this guy can move our people. He can get their heads up. And four years from now, we'll elect somebody who knows better. But four years later, there was no election. He abolished all the elections. And in the next 12 years, plunged the whole world into a war that cost 100 million lives. When I was in high school, the people in Cuba got tired of their dictator, Batista. They heard a young man who could really make a speech. His name was Fidel Castro. He had a brother, Raul. They had a good friend named Che Guevara. They decided to throw their lot with these three. And it's bought them 54 years of miserable communism. Fourteen years ago, the folks of Venezuela said, Boy, we got a guy that can make a speech. This Hugo Chavez, he can really make a speech. And besides that, when he speaks, he says he's going to get all these foreign oil companies out of Venezuela and we're going to eat free. We can buy gasoline for 20 cents a gallon. And they bought them 14 years of Hugo Chavez when their country is in far worse shape than it was 14 years ago when he came to power. There's one saying, I want to be your leader. 
I want to be your shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. You can trust me. Number three, this author said sheep are social animals. I found that interesting. They're social animals. And he said, don't even think about starting with fewer than five. That was his number. Don't even think about starting with fewer than five. I've been cleaning out my office. When I can find 30 minutes here or there, I fill another box. You stay in one office 33 years, you pack in stuff in the closets, you know, that now just have to be taken out and boxed up and taken away. And one day I came to a book by John Bradshaw. Wow, I hadn't even thought of his name in years. John Bradshaw was a Roman Catholic priest down in Houston, Texas. And he drank the communion wine. And he got to the point he was purposely blessing more than he knew the people would drink, so he'd have more to drink at the end. And he drank more, and he became an alcoholic in his 20s. In his early 30s, he ended up in a rehab center in Austin, Texas. I've heard him tell this story here at this church some years ago. One day at that rehab center, he went around by himself to a shrubbery where he could be hidden there, and he got down on his knees and said, God, I've really messed up my life. I'm sorry, and if there's any way you can redeem anything out of the mess I've made, I'd be grateful. And I felt him there. He was there with me. John got sober, dedicated his life to working through 12-step programs, specifically through the Episcopal Church in Houston. And that's where I first knew him. We brought him to Tulsa for a couple of weekend seminars. But I remember Dr. Bradshaw saying this, humans are social beings. They don't do well in isolation. How many times do we read that some perpetrator of some horrible crime was a loner who had shut himself off from the rest of the world? Dr. Bradshaw said in this book, you need at least five. You need at least five people. He said, you don't have to eat with them every day. These may not be family members. If you've got five people who know your name, and every time they see you, they call your name and act like they really care how you're doing, it'll mean the world to you. If you go to the same grocery store, he said, and you go through the same checkout line every time, and there's a sweet person there who says, Hi, George. Have you been? Well, I'm doing pretty well. Good. It's always so good to see you. If you go to a neighborhood post office to buy stamps, and there's one person in there that when you walk in says, Betty, how have you been? I haven't seen you for a while. Well, I bought a roll of 100 last time. I hadn't needed any stamps. Well, I've been thinking about you. It's great to see you person that cuts your hair, styles your hair, throws your paper, if it's somebody you see often that knows your name, he said, everybody needs at least five. At least five. And you hear this one saying, I know your name. I'll call your name. 
Will you follow me? Number four, this author said, since sheep are prey animals, not predators, they've learned, if you would, it's in their genetic code now, that if you're hurt or sick, you fake it because the predator's looking for the weak one. The predator's looking for the weak one, so you fake it. You don't fess up to hurting or being sick. How much have we learned about children who are abused and they're afraid to tell? Afraid to tell. And they carry this dark secret for years and years because they're afraid to tell. Or they're being bullied. Somebody's bullying them at school. Maybe several people, maybe a little group of people bullying them, making life miserable for them and rather than they're fessing up that I'm hurting, I'm hurt, I'm wounded, they fake it. They fake it. This shepherd is the good shepherd, the good one. One of the best things I heard this week, early in the week, after the horrible explosions on Monday, somebody quoted Mr. Rogers from the Mr. Rogers television program. You probably heard that because it went all over the news. Somebody quoted Mr. Rogers as saying he would look right into the television camera and say to these little children who were watching him every morning, when you see something really bad, make your eyes look for the helpers. Make your eyes look for the helpers. Watch those police running right into that smoky area to help. Watch all those volunteers running. Watch the police officers. Watch the firemen who are running into that smoke. Another explosion goes off. They don't even flinch. They don't even look around. They are so focused at that point on being a helper. Father Richard Rohr lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's a Franciscan, which means he is a Christian, a Roman Catholic priest who follows the discipline of St. Francis of Assisi. He's also a prolific writer. And he's written that when you read one of those passages about God telling the children of Israel to go into the promised land and kill everybody they see and burn everybody's house and village, be very suspect of those passages, he said. This is a continuing revelation of God. And most of us Christians know that God did not dictate this word by word. He didn't float down golden plates of any sort. He used real people to get this book of his written, and sometimes they were hearing better than others. And Father Francis, uh, Richard Rohr says, Think of the best person you know or have ever heard about. Mother Teresa, St. Francis. Think of the best person you've ever known. God is better. God is better. Years ago, I started home from work late one afternoon had my radio on, and I heard them say that a young man here in Tulsa 
had put a gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger. As soon as I got home, I called the house and I told a brother of, his, of the deceased, I know people must be calling your mom and dad, phone ringing off the wall. Would you just be sure they get my message? I've heard the news. I know you're brokenhearted. You're in my prayers. If I can help, please let me know. He said, I'll tell them. I said, okay. I went to do my running. I got back in the shower. Gail and I had dinner. We watched a little television. I brushed my teeth, had my pajamas on. I'm ready to go to bed. Phone rings. Everybody's gone now. Mom and Dad would like for you to come. I redressed and I went. The brother had already gone. When I got there, it was just the mom and dad. And they began to do what I've seen so many other people do through the years. They would tell something that would make them cry. And then they'd remember something about their son and they could chuckle for a moment and then they'd think of something else and it'd make them cry. And then they'd think of something that would make them chuckle and hug each other and then they'd cry. It was almost midnight, and the daddy said, I know you've got to go, Dr. Biggs. I really just had one question for you. Can a person who commits suicide go to heaven? I said, I remember the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, You who are sinful think you know how to give good gifts to your children. If one of your children asks for a piece of bread, you don't give them a stone. If they ask for a piece of fish, you don't give a serpent. If you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much greater does your Father in heaven know how to care for you? I said, as I've sat here and listened to the two of you the last hour or so, I've got the distinct impression that you didn't quit loving your son this afternoon at 530 and they both said, no, 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 we didn't. I said, I'm convinced you can't outlove God. Neither can I. Nobody can outlove God. He's better than the best. And so we come to this last verse. I am the good shepherd. I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. You know that church attendance in England is not great. Easter Sunday, a month ago, fewer than 2% of the people of England were in any church on Easter Sunday. So I read with great interest about a young preacher who had been dispatched to Newcastle to start a new church, see if he could do something new. And he decided he needed to know that neighborhood as well as he possibly could, and he saw the greatest crowds gathered at the nightclubs. So he started going to the nightclubs to see what kind of music are they listening to? How do they dress? How do they behave? As best he could pick up conversation, what were they talking about in these nightclubs? And one night he walked into one of them and saw a fellow sitting on a stool over in the corner with a tweed coat and a tie who just didn't fit in. And I said, I walked across the room, told him who I was, and said, I'm sorry, sir, but you don't look like a part of this crowd. And he said, I'm looking for my daughter. He said, your daughter's lost? 
Well, yes, sort of, he said, yeah. Not long ago, my daughter got in with this group called Goths, dressed all in black, dyed her hair jet black, got piercings. I knew she was abusing. I could tell. And then she came home later and later, and then a night when she didn't come home at all. When she finally did come home, the next night I confronted her and she screamed at me and slammed the door and ran into the darkness. I know she comes to places like this. So I come, then I sit on a stool, and I wait. Because I want to throw my arms around her and say, please, come home. Please, come home. And the good shepherd is better than that father. <laughs>